Hello, welcome on a new episode of Overmorrow's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today's episode is dedicated to a short text by a great author. Her name was Simone Weil, and the short text that we will include in our library today is The Iliad, or The Poem of Force. It's a very short text, uh, only a few tens of pages, and it was never published as a book, as a standalone book. But most of what Simone Weil wrote was never published as a standalone book, at least not in, uh, during her lifetime. She died too young for that to happen. She died at 34 in 1942. But even during that very short life, she managed to pack in an incredible amount of erudition, of thought, political activism, spiritual discoveries, and much more than that. So let's start talking about Simone Weil, who she was. And perhaps the best way to describe her is with the words used by one of her admirers, Albert Camus, the French existentialist writer, who called her the only great spirit of our time. Indeed, to many, Simone Weil has been a great source of inspiration, precisely as a, as a spiritual writer, as a mystic, and to some as a saint. Even Pope uh, Paul VI quotes Simone Weil and mentions her as one of the three great influences on his own thought. But at the same time, Simone Weil was an anarchist, a revolutionary anarchist. She took part to the Spanish Civil War, the war that erupted in Spain between the Republicans, uh, mostly anarchists and communists, and the fascists of Francisco Franco, supported by Germany and Italy. And also she was an active member of the French resistance. In both cases, however, she was a peculiar sort of activist. She was not afraid of being there in the flesh and risking her own life, but she refused, on the one hand, to be part of acts of violence, and on the other, also to submit to the idea that violence is the only way to produce results. So she abandoned the Spanish Civil War because of an accident. She basically uh, burned herself very badly with boiling water, but she probably would have left anyway pretty fast because she was horrified at seeing that also the Republicans were using violence and brutality to a similar extent to their to adversaries, also against the civilian population. And when she tried to enter the French resistance, she was in touch with General de Gaulle, um, her suggestions to de Gaulle were difficult, let's say, difficult to put in practice, but also incredibly clever. For example, she noticed that one of the reasons uh, for the success of the Nazis, apart from technique and the technological developments and so on and the organization, but mainly was their ability to take hold of the social imagination, of the imagination of their time. And so she thought that we had to fight them also on that level. So she suggested that to confront the SS battalions, it was important to create a division of nurses who would go unarmed to fight against them. General de Gaulle thought that she was crazy. Um, this was undoable, but he also admired her and it was difficult not to admire her. 
And so he asked her to write um, a text, a blueprint on how to rebuild France after the Second World War. She just about finished it uh, and she died in 1942 uh, at 34 years of age. So she was, let's say, a saint, an anarchist, but also a great mind, not just a great spirit, but a great mind. And to start describing Simone Weil, I think it's important to begin with her mathematical mind. Well, in mathematics, to be frank, she was not at the level of her brother, but that's very difficult anyway, because her brother was uh, a child prodigy. At the age of 12 and 13, he could already resolve doctoral level problems. Uh, and he went on to become one of the most important mathem French mathematicians of, of his time. But also Simone Weil was interested in mathematics and specifically in geometry. Why? Because Simone Weil was a Platonist, because she was a philosopher. Plato had written on the front of his academy, above the door, let no one ignorant of geometry enter this place. And this is something that Simone Weil holds dear as well. So she develops a mathematical sensitivity and a mathematical aesthetics, a taste for balance. We will see later what that means. She was a great mind also in literature and especially ancient literature. Not only she was a fantastic literary critic, we will see that this short text that we will look at today, the Iliad or the Poem of Force is an incredible feat of literary criticism among other things, but also she was very proficient at ancient languages. Already as a, as a young woman, as, as a child, she could speak Greek easily and read it easily. She went on to learn other languages, for example, Sanskrit, because she wanted to be able to read the classics in the original, the great classics of the spirit. And of course, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the classics of the Hindu tradition were as important as those of the Greek tradition. So Simone Weil started working and then learned all these languages. But most of all, she was a genius in philosophy. Her philosophical production is among the most interesting things of the past century. And it is just a heartbreaking shame that uh, it was cut short by her sudden death. What kind of philosopher was she, though? We could say that she was a mystical existentialist. She was part of that tradition that has, as is one of its initiators in modernity, Kierkegaard. But looking back, we could find similar initiators in the figure of Christ, for example, or the Taoist sages. But to look into this, let's start with the text that we are going to add to our library, the Iliad or the Poem of Force. We will find many clues to understand this in the text. It was written, this short essay, in 1939 and published a, a year later in a review. And the text is about the book by Homer, the Iliad, but in particular about the protagonist of the Iliad. You might think the protagonist of the Iliad is obviously the Greeks who waged war against the Trojans. Not quite. The Greeks are not the protagonist of the Iliad, in part because Homer is on both sides, let's say, of the conflict. It's difficult to tell whether he was a Greek or a Trojan writing. But also the protagonist is none of the Trojans. It's not Hector or Priam. All of them somehow are part of the story without being in control of the story. 
the real protagonist, says Simone Weil, is force. Force that manifests itself often as violence, but that is also something more than that. Force is an existentiating principle of the universe. It's that principle that bends things, that makes them vulnerable, exploits the vulnerability, destroys them, that scatters every plan that we might think of. This can be found already in the metaphors used in the Iliad, which have often have to do with animals passing through a field, destroying everything in their wake, and especially with forces bending trees, bending humans. Ananke, destiny, the force above humans and the gods, that is the protagonist of the Iliad. I think that she was writing this in 1939. So it was something not just about the ancient Greeks, but also about her own time. Most importantly, it was something she thought that was universally true of all times. And equally true for her was the big mistake that is recounted in the Iliad. It is the mistake according to which people believe that they can be the masters of the force. That the force is not an existentiating principle in the universe, something that is already there that we have to face, but there is something that we can take control and exploit to our own ends. When humans try to do that, the Iliad happens. Disaster, the final catastrophe. Most heroes of the Iliad meet a terrible end, almost all of them. And this is because the story of the Trojan War is a story of the end of an age, the end of the age of the heroes. According to Greek mentality, you know, uh, time flows a bit differently from how we have believed it for the last 200 years. We think that time goes towards the better future of progress. But according to the Greeks, it's the other way around. Once upon a time, there used to be the golden age where work didn't exist, illnesses didn't exist, neither did old age. And then there was the progressive degradation of the world age of silver, the age of bronze, and finally, the age of iron, the one in which we find ourselves to live, something similar to the Kali Yuga of Hinduism. But in this terrible um, catastrophe, there is also one moment of respite, and it's the age of the heroes between that of bronze and that of iron, a moment when it seemed possible to suspend the disintegration of the world and to turn the flow back. That was the age of Heracles, of Orpheus, of Minos, and that was also the age of the heroes of the Iliad, and it finished, it ended with the Trojan War. And it ended precisely because of that mistake. The Greeks called that mistake ubris, which can be translated vaguely as arrogance, but arrogance seems like a mistake of etiquette. We don't know the extent of our forces and we behave um, beyond what is permissible. No, ubris is a cognitive mistake. It's the idea that we can be the masters of the force. That we can take the force and use it to assert ourselves and to pursue our own ends through destruction. When that happens, when that takes place, Simone Weil notices in this short text, 
we just unleash destruction on everything and everybody, including ourselves. That's how the age of the heroes ends. But in this text, she doesn't only look at force, she looks also at its opposite. We cannot stop the force because it's there, it's part of the universe, but we can counterbalance it. And here you see also the mathematical taste um, that Simone Weil has in her thinking. Balance is a mathematical principle, of course, but she sees it as a moral imperative. When we see that force is exerted against a group of people or an individual person or an individual creature, the imperative of balance, which is also the imperative of beauty, like the Greeks, she thought that beauty and balance coincided, but not just the, the beauty of the balance of proportions in a body, but the balance of the force that destroys and our ability to counterbalance it by helping those that are being destroyed, by alleviating their suffering, by trying to empathize with them in solidarity. And she detects this in the style. She detects the presence of this moral lesson in the Iliad by looking at the style with which Homer writes. There is always a bitter tenderness in the way in which he writes, which, is, which makes the Iliad one of the most extraordinary literary achievements ever produced. This is also, interestingly, the way in which somebody would look at text if this person was a teacher. This is how a teacher usually reads and teaches a text. And Simone Weil has this attitude of a teacher because she was a high school teacher. She went to the Ecole Normale Supérieure, one of the most prestigious schools in France, um, so prestigious and selective that they only admitted 11 students per year. In her year, only two of these 11 students were women. One was Simone Weil, the other one was Simone de Beauvoir. But unlike Simone de Beauvoir, she didn't pursue um, a career as a public intellectual, or she didn't even become a university professor. She preferred to become a high school teacher, always working in provincial schools with an interesting attitude, uh, considering her political leanings and also the intransigence of her thought. She often had problems with her superiors um, and she talked to one of them who was um, threatening to sack her by saying that she always thought that resignation was going to be the high point of her career. She didn't only teach in schools, though. She taught also in factories and among daily laborers in the fields. After her studies, she took a gap year to work in Renault factories, and then she took another year to work in the fields as a daily laborer. And when she was working there, she was trying also to teach her um, fellow workers after work hours, to teach them the classics, to teach them the Upanishads, to teach them philosophy. And she realized that this was very difficult to do. She writes in her diaries that after a day at work, you feel destroyed. You feel destroyed by work, which dehumanizes you and makes it very difficult to discuss philosophy afterwards. Because work, in the way in which it is structured, is exactly like force in the Iliad. She says of force, that is that thing that after it passes, after it's exerted, first you had somebody and then you have nobody. It's that thing that turns humans into things. 
And as long as work is like this, as long as society permits that the force is used as a social mechanism of control and production, as long as that's the case, then no political system will have ever succeeded at the only moral imperative that we have, which is that of producing this counterbalance to the presence of the force. This is also one of the reasons why Simone Weil fell out of love, for example, with some radical um, ideas of her time, such as Marxism, which had an emphasis on the economy on the one hand, and especially on the collective. The combination of these two, the economy and the collective, is the polar opposite of what Simone Weil held dear. She was an anarchist, in fact, and an individualist anarchist. When she looks at the Iliad, for example, she looks at the text that is not about a collectivity as such, but it's about a constellation of individuals. As Simone Weil was very much against collectivities. For example, she wrote uh, an essay, a case for the abolition of political parties. Why? Because she noticed collectivities, collective identities um, of any kind are parasites that substitute themselves for the human individuals that make them up. Collectives, however, are not like people. They don't think, they don't feel, they don't have responsibilities. And these spooks, these, these collective identities, are not just the nation or a particular class, but also more general collective identities, such as that of being a, a person, to have a personality. No, she didn't want to stop at that level. She wanted to look at the individual creatures as individual miraculous existences. When she looks at them, the first thing that she sees, when she looks at every single thing that exists, that lives, the first thing that she notices is their suffering. The suffering of a creature is towards Simone Weil, what another philosopher would have called an infinite demand. The suffering of the other is an infinite demand to share it, to understand it, to alleviate it and to counterbalance it. This, she says, has to be the principle of, a, of my life, of anybody's life, but also the principle of social organization. In the text that she wrote for De Gaulle, The Need for Roots, a blueprint on how to rebuild France after the Second World War, she suggests, for example, how to rebuild society in this way. And most of her ideas are very strange sometimes, but, but many of them are uh, just geometrically necessary and uh, obvious almost. For example, the idea that when we create uh, classes of people that are particularly affected, that suffer particularly, for example, prisoners, the duty of society is to give them the very best that there is to help them, for example, to get the best teachers to teach in prisons, not just the, not the worst, to dedicate them the most resources. Because the point is to find and to feel solidarity. Solidarity always, especially with those who suffer, even if those who suffer, suffer because of a mistake they made. Solidarity is the driving force of her thinking, in a sense, is the moral compass of her thinking, and also, unfortunately, contributed in part to her death. 
When she fell ill in 1942, she had tuberculosis. In solidarity with the people of occupied France, she refused to be given more food that the people in occupied Paris would receive as their daily allowance. And in so doing, she made the illness much worse and basically starved herself to death. Simone Weil deserves much more than we can say in, uh, in only 20 minutes today. But her work remains a towering achievement of the 20th century, but also of all centuries. And even though most of it was never published in a complete form or in the form of a book, if you look inside her diaries, in her notebooks, in the notes that she wrote for her lessons, you find that already there are a million books that she never had the time to finish. This is because Simone Weil had a particular way of writing that would allow you to already see in a line, in a small aphorism, the cascade of consequences that could be developed into another book. She was not a systematic thinker in the way of Hegel or Aristotle, but she was a geometrical thinker. And this you can find always whatever you read by her, even if you disagree with what she says, as T.S. Eliot noticed in the introduction to the need for roots. For example, um, he said often anybody would find themselves to disagree very violently with what she says, but nonetheless, to recognize the genius of the way she puts forward her, her argument and she draws conclusions. This geometrical genius, this ability to produce thought in a very tight formation, is not just a mannerism of a very good style of philosophy, but is exactly part of her way of approaching thought and life, always based on direct experiences. She would only speak about what she knew with certainty, with the certainty of somebody who has experienced it firsthand. On the basis of that experience, then she was capable of drawing a scheme of possible consequences and deductions that sometimes changes across her production, but it's always every time airtight. And this ability to do that is not just um, a mark of genius in philosophy, but also in art and in music. And it makes me think of another young person that shared a thing or two with Simone Veil. His name was Giovanni Battista Pergolesi, who was a musician of the Baroque age in the 18th century. He also died very young at 26 and also died of tuberculosis. On the last night on earth, while he, was, while he died lying in a monastery in, uh, in southern Italy, Pergolesi finished the composition of his masterpiece, the Stabat Mater, a very uh, intense piece of music, one of the best pieces of music, of Western music at least, of all times, in which he talks about the sorrow of the mother of Christ at the feet of the cross. But this very mournful and sorrowful theme is developed by Pergolesi with an incredible lightness as opposed to gravity, Simon Weil would have said. And beauty, and beauty is always the mark of balance, and joy, like Simon Weil always sought in her political and philosophical thinking. But most importantly, while he was trying to finish it, but Pergolesi didn't have the time to finish the composition. So he often wrote on the partiture, 
and so on. Left most of the parts of the, of the strings unfinished. Just sketch the beginning and then for somebody else to continue. And nonetheless, when he wrote the last line of this unfinished masterpiece on his last night on earth, he wrote at the end, thank God I finished it. And then he died. In the same way, it is possible to look at the books of Simon Weil and to follow any of the lines of the short aphorisms of the blasting intuitions that she scatters here and there and to develop it for the creation of other books, of other libraries, but also for the imagination of different ways of living and of thinking the world. We will continue this conversation on Simone Weil next time in the next episode, where we will discuss it with Julia Gale, a writer and playwright who is working on a play on the life of Simone Weil. So please follow me next time here on Overmorrow's Library from the Center of Contemporary Art in Geneva. Thank you.